Lord Jesus, we thank you for this family. I'm coming to thank you, like coming around to thank you even for the <laughs> Sundays that are a bit longer when we have so many announcements and things to get through. So many good things happening, Lord. It's like such a gift to see um, and to be able to just report on what you're doing. Holy Spirit, as we open the word, would you tune our hearts, Lord, to your spirit? Would you help open us up to align our souls with you, Lord? In your name we pray. Amen. I mentioned we're um, going to be releasing some new music from Sanctuary Music this fall. It is, it's coming out so, so amazing. We're really, really excited, especially for this first song. Uh, along with helping produce some of that, some of you know music is sort of my first vocational love. Um, it's what I've given so much of my life and energy to over the years and continue to. Um, I, I, uh, I enjoy like leading heart spaces probably more than I like doing anything else in our church. Um, but so one of the things that I've been doing this fall around music is actually working on some of my own material. And one of the songs I've been playing for a few friends of mine, uh, a song I just put out, or I'm about to put out, uh, and it's, it's a little angry. And it was never a problem before I was a pastor to put out some angry music, some disgruntled music, some music with some ache. Uh, and frankly, when it comes to my theology and my understanding of lament, which is all throughout the Bible and struggles and pain, um, and just the cathartic nature of naming and being honest before God. None of this flies in the face, obviously, of my Christian faith, but it can throw some people out, off, and I've never had to put a song like this out while being a pastor. Any other music I've put out has been generally, you know, just hope-filled and things like that. This song doesn't have a lot of hope. So I had this idea of a marketing campaign. It's got these big three ominous notes that open up the song. And I was like, you know what? I'll just post the big three notes and then I'll put a Bible verse underneath it. And it'll be one of those great verses in the Psalms. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. Anyone know this term? The imprecatory Psalms. These are the Psalms that are like, you tend to skip over when you're reading liturgy in church. It's, it's when David is like, thank you God for who you are. Thank you that you're just P.S. Would you please like bash my enemies' ed heads into the rocks? Or would you please allow my enemies to be devoured by jackals? Right? Is that anyone's life verse? <laughs> like you put it at the bottom of email. So I had this idea of like, I'm, just, I'm not going to write the whole verse out. I'll just put the reference. Like Psalm 63, whatever it is. Like may, may my enemies be eaten by, devoured by jackals and then have these three notes. Just to prepare people. Look, this is scriptural to be really angry. I, I say that only in that the Bible it can be a funny thing. Has anyone actually read the Bible? There's lots of strange stuff in there. There's passages that kind of have the air of, how do you say, genocide. There's some incest situations. There's bears mauling children for like bad jokes being told. Like full of miraculous things that are really hard. Does, does that stuff really happen or is that just ancient myth? And then to, to make it worse, it's full of a bunch of teachings that aren't in line with the progressive left or the conservative right. So you just like, it's one of these like reads that kind of ticks everybody off depending on where you're at. We are dealing with a generational, like a generation-wide breakdown of trust in the scriptures. One writer says, this is the era of the post-Bible Christian. I can sort of be a follower of Jesus via information that I just sort of gleaned without actually entering into the scripture. 
And, and it's been in my estimation that the post-Bible Christian is sort of a layover to just becoming straight up post-Christian. And now let me say this before I go on. I am as skeptical as they come. I know a lot of you only know me as like Pastor Andrew. But my, my dad can give testament to this. He's here in the room today. If you just need some like witnesses, I am about as cynical and skeptical as they come and especially have been around the scriptures in the past. So I have so much empathy for those who are working this out. So much empathy. One of the things we're going to be doing this fall is carving out some space on Sundays where we don't have 600 announcements. Is doing like a little Q&Rs, like a short five minute, just to have some response of some questions as they come in. These, that's some of my favorite things because there are so many good answers about the Bible. I have come to trust the Bible. This is one of the reasons we do Alpha is like there's a whole week on can you trust the Bible, getting into the historicity of this and the absolute like sociological and historical like wildness that brought the Bible together. It is unlike almost any other historical book in the best sorts of ways that holds up to critical historical criticism. Right, I've, I've gone through, if you have any big questions about the Bible or pieces of the Bible, just type in your question and then type the word Bible project and just listen to everything they say or N.T. Wright. Just, just start there and you'll hit like 90% of your questions. And we could start there this morning a week that I want to talk about, can you trust the Bible as we begin a series on finding clarity in an age of confusion? I felt like we needed to start with a week or two on the scriptures because this, as followers of Jesus, is the source of our clarity. How do we make sense of like post, of, uh, of, of like very secular um, enlightened deconstructionist gender theory? How do we talk about the confusion around politics and about fake news and not fake news and how do we make sense of the goalposts that are constantly changing about what is true and what is not true? How do we engage what I know that feels like from everybody from Gen Z to the boomers in the room feels like things are moving really fast. Every data, every poll that comes out, the data points to, quote, an exhausted majority. Anyone feel like that in their bones? Like, I am the exhausted majority. I mean, if you just totally tuned out and you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're like, I don't know, man. Netflix is good this year. <laughs> Kidding. So we could start with placing the Bible on trial where we are judge and jury determining the verdict of whether the Bible holds up to serious scrutiny. Again, some of you need to go through that process. And this talk isn't quite for you, but it's not, not for you. But to be clear, that posture of placing the Bible, of, uh, placing ourselves as judge and jury over the Bible, this is actually not the heart posture of the follower of Jesus. We could ask, what does the Bible say about itself? We could start there, but that would just lead us to circular logic. That wouldn't be helpful Right? Well, what does the Bible say about itself? Well, it says you should trust it. Well, I don't trust the Bible, and here we are. So what I want to do is start our time off with just talking about Jesus. Because Jesus was a rabbi, and a rabbi is what? Teacher. And what did he teach? He didn't teach God. No, what did he teach? He teached the scriptures. Over and over and over, he is teaching the scriptures. 
his vision of life was based on the scriptures. He disagreed with certain people's interpretations, which is what causes half of the gospel accounts that we read. He likely had it, all of it or most of it memorized and internalized. For most of us, let's be honest, this is why we read the Bible at all. Because they point to Jesus. They speak of Jesus. Because Jesus revered him. Because what we know about Jesus comes from the scriptures. Our trust in the Bible starts with our trust in Jesus. We trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus. We pattern our engagement with the Bible. We pattern our life after Jesus' engagement. So would you turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5 verse 17. This is Jesus towards the beginning of what is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. This is like the manifesto for the movement that Jesus is announcing. The kingdom of God, heaven come to earth. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Abolish is a technical term. It means to disobey or disrespect the scriptures. We could use in like a modern like translation, like urban dictionary would be like deconstruction. Like do, I have not come to deconstruct the Bible. Don't think I've come to do that. Because some people were accusing him of doing that. He then goes on. I've come uh, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word fulfill here, this is a little twist. Right, again, abolish means obey or means to disobey, rather. So you would think he would say, I have come to, like, obey the Scriptures, and that's not what he says. He says, I've come to fulfill them. Jesus sees the entire Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, leading up to him. And then in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one uh, of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This phrase here, set aside, is a Greek term, uh, uh, luo, which means to untie. It's a play on words. It means to play fast and loose with the Bible, to pick and choose. If you abolish it and then you teach others, like we don't really have to obey this. If we teach a sort of accommodation, he says, you will be the, the least. In some way, you will not get out of this what you need to get out of this. You will be regarded as somebody who is not doing the right thing. But whoever practices the, and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, if you don't deconstruct it, if you take it seriously, especially Jesus' words and explanations of how to fulfill them, if you devote your life to practice it, getting it from your head into your bones, letting it shape your entire mindset and the whole way you think about everything. If you do this, you'll be great, right? You'll be in line <laughs> with how things are. Anyone want to be great? Anyone want to be in line with how things are? If this is true, the claim is that like the very base nature of reality, to be in line with the ground of your being, with how things are meant to be, the scriptures are critical. For Jesus, if you want to experience the greatness of the kingdom, which is, again, the rule and reign of God, you have to be in this thing. 
Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what does he do? He goes on to actually then teach the Bible. He goes on and references in sections about, um, the next section is about murder. You've heard it said uh, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Right out of the gate, after saying this, he quotes Exodus. And then he goes on to talk about adultery and talk about divorce and talk about oaths and talk about loving your enemies, talk about giving to the needy, talking about prayer, talking about like anxiety and worry and judging others and the identity we have in Christ that we can ask, seek, and knock. And he talks about true prophets and false prophets and wise builders and foolish builders. And all of this, almost every section, he leads and jumps out by talking about the Bible. The scriptures. He uses that as his jump off. And please notice the, 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 the way that Jesus does this calls directly into question the way that we read the Bible. So at the risk of some stereotypes, which is my favorite preface, on the left, you tend to have people ref, like reflect on the Bible as a human document. But, you know, it's full of all of this patriarchy records people's experiences with the divine in some sort of way, right? It's like kind of, I know it's like shaped the best of human, like the, you'll, you'll hear a good talk about shaped human rights, obviously. It's shaped the way that we think about justice. Even people want nothing to do with the Bible. It's always the great comic joke that I feel like God's playing on all of us. Folks who want nothing to do with the Bible, their drive to see justice is quite literally a Judeo-Christian idea. So it emphasizes that, but like be careful not to take it too seriously. It tends to downplay the miracles. And this is in part, if you're like, yeah, sounds about right. I guess I'm on the left. This is in the part shapes, is it was a reaction to a more fundamentalist view, which takes it seriously as scripture, but reads the Bible as if it fell out of the sky as a locked owner's manual. Right, there are these assumptions that you can, um, that there's a way to read the Bible without agenda and without any perspective. As if all the other people have opinions and biases, but you can just read it as it is, unaffected by outside influences. But when you hear people say, right, that they're going to just tell you what the Bible means, it's not true. They're going to tell you what they think it means. They're going to give you an opinion. Well, I'm just telling you what it means. The problem is, is that is literally never True. The idea that everybody else approaches the Bible with baggage and agendas and lenses, and you don't, is obviously the ultimate in arrogance and what has led in part to much of the reaction against the more fundamentalist view. To think that I can just read the Bible without reading any of my own culture or background or issues into it uh, that can come with, again, a pure and exact meeting is not, is not true and incredibly destructive. The Bible, we know, has to be interpreted. Now, if you're tracking with me, someone somewhere should be thinking, well, it sounds like both sides can be guilty of just making it say whatever they want to say. Anyone else thinking that question? Exactly. So let's go a little deeper. In Jesus' day, in the time of the passage that we just read, there are these two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I just want to be a Pharisee. that come to anyone's mind? Any church kids? Because they're not fair, you see. Anyone? I don't want to be a Sadducee. They're just sad, you see. No? Anyone like, I definitely came to the wrong church. Great. Um, Sadducees. They are a smaller group of upper upper class elites. Just think about if this maps anywhere. 
power brokers of the day, along with Rome, they set the trajectory of the future of, of Israel, incredibly relaxed and cherry-picked the Bible. They were open to popular interpretations. They refused to believe in the supernatural, even in prayer at some level. They were happy to let the scriptures fit in with the Roman Greco vision of the good life. Mark 12. Then the Sadducees who said, uh, then, the, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, right? No supernatural, came to Jesus with a question. Verse 19 of Mark 12, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is a long story I don't have time to get into today, but this is actually precious and a beautiful justice solution for people in the Torah. This was like one of the most caring commands in the scripture to take care of people. I don't have time to get into it all. Verse 20, now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. This is an unhealthy pattern. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? <laughs> I just got to think, some of these guys have, like... <laughs> Got to be asking, wait, 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 the last four guys have all died. Maybe this is a bad move, but I digress. Right, what are the Sadducees doing? You can hear the snark. They're just like, this is like, there's contempt and there is arrogance toward Jesus. And Jesus replied in that unbelievably beautiful Jesus way. Jesus replied, are you not an error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Are you not an error? Because you don't really know the scriptures. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. That, which is, by the way, a little jab because the Sadducees did not believe in like angels or heaven or any of that. Now, about the dead rising, you have not read in the book of Moses. So he's quoting scripture in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He says, you are badly mistaken. Who do the Sadducees sound like in our day and age? The left, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the progressives. And Jesus is like, you're missing out on the power of God and the activity of God. So he's both gentle with them and reasons with them. And then he's like, you guys are badly mistaken. And he goes right at them. But then, lest you think the Bible is going to only go after one side, you have the Pharisees. This is a populist movement in the heartland, all about the scriptures, right? Already, wealthy elite on one side, the populace in the heartland made everything about the scriptures. They made their kids put it to memory. They got up early to read, but over time, they added all of these human traditions to it, and they made those sort of equal with the scriptures. In John 5, verse 39, you can follow along with me. Jesus says, you Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently. So you think you're going to get a high five from Jesus right now. He goes with me? Yeah? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. This is the tradition maybe some of you came up with, with his Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Anyone come in the, up in that tradition? Maybe you came from the South and Southern Christianity. Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's why all this first seek stuff with all the prayer and listening is like freaking you out. 
Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Yeah, yeah. We, we almost, there's like an idolization that happens. Now, to be clear, this doesn't happen in Providence very often. That's why there's only a handful of names. It's really, we have the opposite issue. But in some cultures, this is real. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You love people. I'm sorry, you love the Bible, but not people, Jesus is saying. You read. Anyone know anybody who knows the scriptures upside, backwards, and forwards, and they are just like a nightmare of a person when it comes to anything that resembles Jesus? Yeah. You're like, cool, you can quote scripture at me. Why are you so mean? Why are you so, like, like greedy? And why are you so, like, driven on the wrong sorts of things? And why do you not, why is there no empathy and no care and no kindness and no joy and a lot of anxiety? I mean, what's going on? But he goes, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes only from God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, which is his way of saying, you actually think you've read the Bible, but you haven't let it read you. Your accuser is Moses is a way of saying your accuser is the scriptures on whom your hopes are set. Right? Can I just say P.S.? Don't let someone ruin your faith just because they don't follow the Bible well and they say they do. I think one of the greatest single causes of deconstruction right now and loss of faith is a bunch of people who say, I'm a Christian and hold that flag high and I know the scriptures, who say it with their lips, walk out the door and deny it by their lifestyle completely. I think that is what an untrusting world simply finds untrustworthy about the Bible. Again, Jesus here to the Pharisees is he's loving, but he's, not on, but he's honest. On whom your hopes says, if, if you believed Moses, if you believed the scriptures, you would believe me for he wrote about me. If you actually trusted them and this was not just some religious ritual that you go through that is cloaked in tribalism or whatever else. You study diligently, but you've lost the plot. It has not led you to God. It's led you to religious pride. Anyone know anyone like that? Anyone like, that's me. Awesome. <laughs> There are two basic ways, right? Two basic ways that we have, that have parallels in our time, and Jesus took issue with both. So we should take issue with both. Now, I could land there. Jesus, there's a third way. His way is the best of both. We can, we can read the Bible well and intelligently and take it for what it says, and we need to internalize that, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I think that would still fall a little bit short. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. This is written by Paul, another rabbi, another teacher who teaching the scriptures and the way of Jesus to his apprentice, Timothy. We read in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. So there's a heritage, right? Some of you have a heritage of reading the scriptures. Laura, you have a heritage of reading the scriptures, right? Wesley, you have a heritage. You grew up, and I grew up in this. you known from infancy, which are able to make you wise. The, the word here is intelligent and skillful, really good at living. For salvation, 
It's able to make you wise for salvation. Salvation is about healing. The healing of your soul in union with God through faith, which is like trust in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. Here, this means like literally like breathed out by God from the spirit through people. And then he says it's useful. And it's useful for what? If you're taking notes, write this list down. This is what scripture is useful for. It's useful for teaching. For teaching. There's a whole new possibility of what is good and true and beautiful. He's like, scripture is useful to give you a vision for your life. Two, rebuking. A whole new possibility, right, that you have for life. Rebuking is about helping us see the lies that have shaped us and the ways that we're living out of alignment. The scripture helps realign you, helps rebuke you and push you back onto the path of Jesus. It's good for, then he says, correcting, to bring you back into alignment with the wholeness of Christ. And then training, which is the process of growth. Like this would be a term used in a Greco-Roman household for a child who is listening to a combination of learning, wisdom, experience, formation from a parent or from a tutor. Something about the regular reading of scripture helps nurture you and nurture your soul and grow you. And then, Timothy, you following along? Yes. And to this end, here's to the end. For what reason? For what reason the Bible? This is the most important part of the whole sermon. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is not a bad translation. I think the ESV in this section gets a little closer. It says, may you, that you may be complete, equipped for every good work. Something that is perfectly, the idea is something that is perfectly suited to its nature. Something that is perfectly suited to its nature. How many of you eat tomatoes in January? One Adam is the only person who eats tomatoes in January. Tomatoes in January. What's wrong with tomatoes in January? They're strip mine out in California somewhere. Anyone tasted a tomato in July from a garden or a farm stand? Anyone tasted that tomato? Anyone had a July tomato from a farm stand? Yeah, hallelujah. Praise him. Got swept into tongues there. That tomato, you can eat like this, and it just, just down your, it just, the, all the juice, all the juice. You guys are all have a really unhealthy image now. <laughs> My father-in-law has an epic garden, and there's something about tomatoes that come from Papa's garden. This is the idea here of that you may be a, a complete, equipped for every good work. Something that is perfectly suited to its nature. It's how it's supposed to be. That's how a tomato is supposed to be. The scriptures help you become who you're supposed to be. The scriptures are for our formation. We cannot read them just for information. They are meant to nurture us and to grow us and correct us that we may become the person that we were created to be. Now we must read it then with the right heart posture so it gets in us. Now do we need to read for information sometimes? Yes, again, everything the Bible Project's ever put out. Just start there on YouTube. 
But we have to resist how our culture brings in information, maybe how you've been trained to. When it comes to information, our goal is only data and not to let it form us. We can't just read for information. We have to read for formation, and that requires a shift in us to not simply grasp the Bible, but to let the Bible grasp you. The greatest challenge on the path of Jesus is to give up the illusion of control and have faith that God's way is the best way. Brennan Manning says this, because we approach the gospel with preconceived notions of what it should say rather than what it does say, the word, the Bible, no longer falls like rain on the parched ground of our souls. It no longer sweeps like a wild storm into the corners of our comfortable piety. It no longer vibrates like sharp lightning in the dark recesses of our non-historic orthodoxy. The gospel becomes, in the words of Gertrude Stein, a pattering of pious platitudes spoken by a Jewish carpenter in the distant path, past. So why are we beginning a series on I got nothing? A series on clarity with the Bible? Because this is the beginning of clarity. Clarity on how we live. Clarity on how to think well in the age of authenticity which is essentially an age that says, I want freedom from everything, especially something like the Bible. Something in the air that wants to reject every cultural norm from every previous generation. It's like the intoxicating lie that the universe started with you and that all new thoughts are right thoughts, which we know historically is evil and leads to evil. It's basically what my nephew says to me all the time. You're not the boss of me. That is our cultural like lie right now. And so we must let the Bible read us. We must not place ourselves over it. And to be clear, we have to do this with conviction and we have to do this with humility. When the first Christians in Acts 15 came out of this incredibly important meeting, deciding, I don't have time to get into this, but deciding some very critical things about the future of the church and how the Gentiles were going to come into the church. They said the strangest thing. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then they go on to explain the situation at hand. Did you catch that phrase? It seemed best to us and the Holy Spirit. They are making a monumental decision in the history of Christianity, and what they say is it seems best to us. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. Learned men and women studying the Scriptures, who have the Scriptures internalized, who are debating the Scriptures. This was not an unintellectual exercise. This is a recognition also, though, of humility. A humble nature it seems good and best to us. And you can only enter in with this kind of humility. You can only enter into the scriptures with this kind of boldness and humility if we trust Hebrews 4.12. For the, for the word of God, the Bible is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's alive. And it's active. Would you say alive? Active. Right? So good. 
This is the story of Adam and Eve, right? In the famous line when the evil one comes to Eve and says, did God really say? Right in our day and age, all I see is the spirit, in the spirit of this cultural moment is that line. Did God really say? Are men and women actually that different than the beginning of the story? Should I really sacrifice my livelihood for the sake of the poor? Should I really forgive instead of stepping into cancel culture? Should I really trust? Should I really trust in the institution of marriage with all the brokenness around me? It's right there on the first page, the alive and activeness of an ancient story that still speaks to us today. Did God really say? Or, or, or there's, there's the Israelites leaving Egypt when they were slaves and God brings them out of freedom. It happens. It happened then and it happens now every day for many of us. Hopefully that's going to happen for some of us in just a moment. We were in darkness, in slavery, and God brought us out. And we continue to identify areas of darkness in our lives and slavery in our lives. And God continues to bring us out just like he did then. In this day, today, if you go into a Jewish synagogue, you will likely hear kids taught the story of Exodus as their story. A friend of mine recently heard a Jewish kid say, we were slaves in Egypt and Moses led us out and we complained in the wilderness. We. Their story is our story. These ancient stories are connected to ours. They are reflective of how things are. And this is why the Bible loses its power in so many communities because they fall into the trap of thinking the Bible is just about things that happened a long time ago. But the Bible is about today. These stories are alive and active. And so we have to embrace the Bible as this wild and uncensored account of real people in real times experiencing the living God, even doubting the one true God, wrestling with God, arguing with God. That's all in the Bible. Getting angry with God, reconciling with God, loving and worshiping and thanking and following the one who gives us everything that we truly need. We cannot tame it. We cannot tone it down. We cannot cherry pick what we want that just fits into our cultural moment. If we do, Jesus has clear words. Man, you'll be least in the kingdom. You're going to be at the back of the line, man. You're not going to experience the joy of what it is to be alive in me. So for those of us here this morning seeking to walk the path of Jesus, to become like him, to be with him, to do what he did and to do all that in the way that we were meant to in the church is the Bible front and center in your life. George Muller says the vigor of our spiritual life, the vigor of your life. Anyone want a vigorous spiritual life? It will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. <laughs> I solemnly state this from experience of 54 years. The first three years after my conversion, I neglected the word of God. Since I began to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. Great has been the blessing from consecutive, diligent, daily study. I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the word of God. I texted that to a friend last night. <laughs> And they just responded, that's not convicting at all. <laughs> One last verse as we close. If you'd prepare your, your bodies and hearts to respond. Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you. Let the message of Christ 
dwell richly among you. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And the message, it says, let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room to run in your life. Let the, will you let it? Question one, will you let it? Dwell richly has this idea of being stocked with good teaching. It's like a palace filled with treasures that should take up residence. Because if it dwells poorly, it has no mighty force and no influence. That word richly is where we get the word like the English word plutocrat which describes a person whose power derives from their wealth. You can be a holy plutocrat. Didn't see that one coming, did you? A holy plutocrat, someone who is like, your power comes from your wealth. It's not earthly wealth. It is the wealth of knowing God and knowing the riches of Scripture. This describes the incredible abundance and vast prosperity and immense riches. So speaking of plutocrat in the English language, it feels appropriate on this day where many of us are mourning the death of the queen. As many of you know, the queen passed away, and at her, but you may not know that at her coronation, the queen was presented with a Bible. As she was given it, these words were spoken. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. What's great about this scene <laughs> is that she was wearing a priceless golden crown adorned with 2,901 precious stones. She was sitting on a throne in a thousand-year-old vaulted abbey. Worth nothing, you know. And yet God's word was recognized in that place as the most valuable thing that this world affords. And you may have like some sort of complicated vision of like what the queen is. And I didn't grow up with any of that. I, I, she seemed like a great woman and followed Jesus gratefully. But I say some of the information that's come out has been great. In a time where we are rightfully paying attention to all of like the, the brokenness of colonization and something that is like confusing as the, as the, as the, the matriarchy, as the, 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 the royal family. It is fascinating how many people have been writing about how this queen sat and held rank underneath the decolonization of much of the British Empire over the last hundred years. But I digress. Someone who led, we're told, with such kindness and such deep reverence, faith for the, the word. Riches and a room of opulence. Somebody pulled out a dirty old Bible and said, this this is the richest thing in this whole room and the most important physical possession you have in your life. And so thousands of years earlier, before this moment with the queen, we read from the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. All day long, your commands are always with me and you make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. That's not saying you're getting smarter. I mean, you might be. But that's saying you know where the wisdom and the truth and the life actually is. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and, can, and, and, um, and just convict those of us who haven't made the word central? And at the end, we'll, we'll share a practice or two. 
But I just sense there's just like, without any like big epic call to anything, <laughs> there's just in this moment, it's like a welling up conviction. Like, man, I, I, I do trust that. Or I trusted that once. Or I'm not sure where to start, but I need to start somewhere. I just pray you seal that. That is not a passing thought or a moment right now of intellectual, cognitive assent. The very thing that Jesus is blasting in the way the Pharisees read the Bible. No, Lord, we want this to enter into our bones and enter into our pocketbooks and enter into how we love and we serve and we bless and our kindness and our patience and our joy because we remember as we dwell richly on the word, we remember who is our rock and our cornerstone, who gives life, who is love, who brings light to the darkness, who restores, who brings hope, who restores every heart that is broken. And so church, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? And would we sing together greater, great are you, Lord, for the goodness, for the goodness of God in giving us the scriptures. Holy Spirit, before we sing, before we take communion, I want to invite us to pause and to listen. And in my tradition that I grew up in, the, the word was like, like surrender. It was a surrender. I, just want, I want to surrender to you, like to what you want to say now. I want to place myself not over you and put you in a box of what you can and will do in this moment, but I want to place myself under you, the author of creation. I know some of you aren't followers of Jesus here. Maybe for you, it's just an invitation to lean into the openness, true openness. God, if you're there, I mean, I guess, would you speak? Maybe it's an openness to beginning to con commit to begin to read the scriptures regularly, to come to Alpha or whatever it is. But for the rest of us, I just I ask you to take a moment to listen. God, what do you want to say to us? What do you want to say to this room? What have you already said that you want to seal? Let's be still before our God. Spirit, you're welcome here. You're welcome in this place. How would we respond to this, Lord? Seal truth in our hearts. Push away that which is not good and not true, not beautiful, not of the kingdom. Great are you, Lord. As we come to the table, I invite you to continue to listen and to pray. Our people over here would love to pray with you in either corner. We've pushed this one pew back. If you want to come and sit and kneel, maybe it has nothing to do with the scriptures. You just, you need to come forward to pray, ask the Lord for something. And all this will happen um, as we come to the communion table. And if someone feels like they have a word for the room, uh, Mike is a leader of our prayer team. You can go and share that with him if there's something you sense that is for the room today. For the rest of us, we want to come forward. 
up the center aisle if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. And we remember the words of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He, at the cross, is fulfilling, in the cross and resurrection, fulfilling all that the scriptures had talked about, revealing the true nature of God, broken open and poured out for, for us. Now, after dinner, he took the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new way we are going to relate together. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they drank. They took bread and they took cup. These two physical, very human, tactile things. He said this, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And throughout history, followers of Jesus have come to experience healing and transformation and a new life as they come to the table. It's almost they've experienced Christ as they taste again the drink and the bread, the, the, the nutrients we need for the new week. So church, come and pray, come and kneel, come and take communion and let us rejoice in our firm foundation. Come.